0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you decided to brave the cold. Yesterday morning, I put on one of three sleeveless shirts that I own, and we went for a walk at Oak Point. Spent a couple hours walking. It was so pleasant. I don't know what happened, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't pleasant this morning. Uh, thank you so much for coming out. And perhaps uh, Texas is a great reminder of, of something I want to talk about in the message today. I've been thinking uh, as we're kind of at the beginning of the year, we're looking ahead to another year full of uncertainties. And I look back and see that the last two years of my life have been unlike the 50 that preceded them. I don't know if that's been your experience, but it certainly has been for me. These past two years have been very different. And uh, since COVID hit, I think if I counted right, we've traveled by plane three times. Every time, uh, it was unlike any other time I have traveled. Uh, We had to wear masks the whole flight, even in our flight to Spain, which is an eight-hour flight. We had to wear our masks uh, in the plane the whole time. And uh, the world is adjusting to the new reality of a virus that has spread across the globe. And that uh, continues to change and mutate Uh, and uh, talking to Ellie about this she tells me I don't know if we're ever going to really go back to what it was like before all of this and you know that's very possible it may be that things don't return to what we had experienced before I'm reminded 20 years ago of what happened on 9-11 and how that changed forever what we perceive to be the necessary precautions we should take to be able to have international travel the way we do. Uh, you, I remember before 9-11, you went to the airport, you could take pocket knives, you could take all kinds of stuff with you, and nobody cared. You could walk in and out of the boarding area and uh, say goodbye at the gate. There are a lot of movies that do that kind of thing. Well, you can't do that anymore, and I doubt you ever will. Some things change, and it's not the same as it always was. Some moments in history change everything. And I'd like to remind you today as we're starting a new year that that's exactly what we could say about Jesus, that Jesus changes everything. And we're going to be looking today in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, and we kind of pick up, this is early in the gospel of Mark, but already he's done some unexpected things. He's called a tax collector, Levi, somebody who everybody looked at as a pariah, somebody who had sold out their own nation for money uh, and was collaborating with the occupying Roman forces, bleeding fellow Jews of their money and sending all of those taxes to strengthen, further strengthen, the oppressive Roman Empire. They were viewed by Jews as sellouts who did not uh, care about their fellow people, who chose money over their identity as the people of God. And Jesus not only talked to Levi, he called him, to follow him and not only that but Levi threw a party at his house and Jesus went and hung out there with Levi and all the other unsavory figures that were part of Levi's life because no uh, a decent person would be a part of Levi's life and already Jesus has been criticized about that you know what what's Jesus doing hanging out with sinners and Jesus has addressed that but it's very clear that Jesus is doing things In an unexpected way. And we kind of arrive at a similar thing. This time the challenge is not asked to the disciples about Jesus. It's actually directed to Jesus uh, specifically. Let's look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. They're questioning Jesus' spirituality. And they're saying, well, you claim to be a teacher of the truth of God. And you've got all these things. You're kind of insinuating that you are the Messiah. This grand figure that we've been told about throughout the whole sacred scriptures. And we've been waiting for. If you're this grand spiritual leader that we're all waiting for. Why don't your disciples fast? The disciples of John fast." the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but as far as we can tell, neither you, Jesus, nor your disciples ever fast. And they're trying to evaluate Jesus' credentials. And there's kind of a checklist in first century Judaism of what constitutes a pious leader. And one of those things that was expected was fasting. Fasting. In fact, the Pharisees often would do it on a regular day of the week. They would have a specific day of the week. They would fast every week. It was uh, what they would call a spiritual discipline. And they're questioning Jesus about this. And it, it strikes me that the focus here is completely mistaken. They're not focusing on what Jesus has come to do. They're not focusing on how the reality of the arrival of the promised Messiah is going to absolutely change the whole world. They're trying to figure out how to fit Jesus into the structures of their religious life as they have already established them. And regular fasting is one of those structures. Jesus, why are you not doing this? It makes me think of a question that maybe we should ask ourselves because Jesus is going to, in the next few verses, point out very clearly that he's come to completely, radically transform things and that he's not going to fit into the structure of how we expect him to be. And I guess what I'd like us to consider is how how have we fallen into that trap? Of maybe allowing something other than Jesus himself to be the standard. Of measuring our own spiritual walk and our own spiritual life by some metric other than Jesus himself. Jesus answers with three little bitty uh, parables. Let's look at the first one in verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. First illustration Jesus uses is a wedding feast. Now, in in our day and age, uh, weddings don't tend to last more than a day. In fact, I have been to some weddings that were like 15 minutes. I had, I had a wedding that I had. It was in Dallas, and we lived in Fort Worth at the time, and we left way early, but there was a big traffic jam. We were, I think, 10 minutes late, and we missed the wedding. That's how short it was. Well, in the first century in Jewish life, that's not the way weddings went. The Weddings could last a week. I mean, it was just a communal celebration that these two lives were joining together and they were forming a new family. And the society, uh, uh, at this time, the Jewish society understood the significance of that. It kind of grieves my heart that marriage... And family has been so eroded in our culture that people don't think of it as anything that important. But they would spend a week feasting and celebrating. The whole community would celebrate this marriage. And Jesus says, consider, imagine you are at a wedding and your friend, the bridegroom, is getting married. And you're one of those close friends who has been invited to this wedding. Are you going to tell your friend who is getting married, I'm sorry, I can't eat all this food you put out for me. I'm fasting. Jesus said, you're not going to do that. That would be a slap in the face. You don't do that at a feast. When it's time to celebrate, you celebrate. And what Jesus is saying is the reason his disciples aren't fasting right now is that it's not the time since Adam and Eve sinned and all creation fell under the oppressive power of sin and death from that moment forward every human being who has lived has yearned for the moment when God would intervene and do something to deal with the problem of sin that hopelessness That had been crying out to God to step in and do something about it. That's been carrying since the dawn of time. And finally, the answer has arrived. The Messiah is here. Jesus says, now is not the time for mourning. My disciples are throwing a party because they recognize the significance of this moment. They know that they have waited their whole lives for this moment and they are finally able to participate in it and they know that millions have died before them longing for that day and they died and never saw it and they get to see it and they are celebrating because it is the most important thing that has ever or ever will happen in the history of the world. So it's a moment for celebration. The blind see the deaf hear and the poor hear the good news. Preach to them. Finally, there's an answer. And you're talking to me about fasting? Now is not the time for it. Jesus doesn't say that fasting is wrong. He does say that there's a time for it and there's a time when it's not appropriate. He says the days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Jesus knows that before long he will hang on a cross and his disciples will endure the agony of watching their Savior die in the most painful and humiliating way possible. And he knows that even after his resurrection and his victory over sin and death and the explosion of joy that will accompany his resurrection appearances among the disciples, that even that will end because after 40 days he will return to the Father. And Jesus knows that the church is staring ahead at three centuries of severe persecution. He knows that most of his disciples are going to die for their faith in Him. He knows that dark days are coming. And he says, "The day will come when fasting will be the right thing. When that kind of day comes, they're going to fast. Don't worry. They'll do it at the right moment. And Jesus is indicating one thing that he's changing. With him arriving, fasting is no longer just something you do regularly. Fasting becomes something that you do when it's the moment for it. When it's a a moment of celebration and joy, that's not the appropriate context for fasting, but there are dark days down the road. When you are in the dark day, that is the moment to say, I need God. I am hanging on by a thread. My life is facing utter annihilation. The forces that are overwhelming me right now are more than I can handle, and I desperately need God. When those days arrive, Fasting is absolutely the appropriate thing to do. But you don't just do it like it's a checklist. Like it's something, oh, I fasted today. Uh, You know, put it on your offering envelope. Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Uh, No, that's not the way it works. Jesus is saying that uh, this idea... That now that Jesus has showed up, now that the Messiah has come, we can just add him on to what we already have going on. And these are the patterns of religious life we have built. And we have structured everything this way. And fasting happens this way because that's the way we live our religious life. Let's see how we can fit Jesus into this. And Jesus makes it very clear. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to cram me into what you already have going on. That's not how it's going to work. In fact, in Jesus, we do things based on our walk with him and on what is actually going on. There's another way Jesus answers this question. Verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, we're moving on from just talking about how we should understand fasting. We're moving on to the bigger question. How do we fit Jesus into what's already going on? And here's the illustration. Suppose you have an article of clothing, and it's got a big hole. And you know, that's, that's a great jacket, but man, that hole in the, sh- in the elbow here is just not going to work. I, I can't wear that. I need to patch it. I need to put a patch on it. Well, Jesus says, if you're thinking that your whole religious life is that jacket, and you realize that it's not enough, that you need something else, that it is lacking in some way, and that's very much the way God wrote the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not enough. The law of Moses is not enough. It cries forward for somebody to come and fulfill the law, complete the law, be the end and completion of the law. The prophets spoke of God sending a Messiah who would wrap up everything and bring the peace that we so desperately need. So all the Old Testament, even though it was given by God and was wonderful, it was not enough. It was like a jacket with a huge hole in the elbow. Might have been nice, but it wasn't up to the task. And here's what people might be tempted to do with Jesus. We've got all this law of Moses. We've already got several centuries tracing back at least to the time of Ezra and the reconstruction of the temple. Five or six centuries. And we've been developing this rabbinic tradition of how we should live the law and how we should walk in the law. And we're so proud of our traditions. And the things we've developed. And we've got it all figured out. Now the Messiah is here. How do we fit him into this? How do we tack him on and cover the hole in the jacket? When Jesus says, you know, if you take a new piece of cloth, a piece of cloth that's never been washed, and you sew it onto an old garment that's already been washed several times, first time you wash it, That new piece of cloth is going to shrink a little bit. And you know what's going to happen to that patch? It's just going to tear a bigger hole in your other jacket and the garment you sewed it onto. And you're not going to be better off, you're going to be worse off. Jesus is saying, when it comes to me, you can't just tack me on to what you already had going on. You can't just think of me as a supplement. I'm the whole deal. I'm not a patch. Some people come to Jesus because they're not looking for a savior. They're looking for a solution to a particular problem. They don't want Jesus. They want a patch. Jesus says, that won't work. If you try to patch me on, leave everything else the way it is, and just tack me on to solve this little part of the problem for you, it's going to make things worse, not better. I don't work that way. One more way to talk about this. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You put wine into a wineskin, you put new wine into a brand new spanking new leather uh, wineskin and as the, the wine breathes and uh, ferments further, the, the new leather can stretch to accommodate that and the wine gets even better and it's perfect, it's the way a wineskin is supposed to work. But once you've done that and you drink all that wine, you can't take another batch of new wine and put it under that same old wineskin because when the wine tries to do what it was supposed to do, that wineskin is no longer able to give. It is no longer able to stretch and it's just going to pop. And you're going to lose both the wine and the skin. Jesus says, "That's, that's what I'm here to do. You can't just fit me into the old thing you had going on. You can't just say, this is my life. These are the structures of my life. These are the assumptions I have made. These are the processes I have built my life around. This is my life. Let me put Jesus into this. And a lot of times we come to Jesus with this attitude of, how can I get Jesus to accommodate me? I've got my life going on, I've got it all figured out. All I need is a better job, a little more money, and good health. Jesus, I will take you for those three things, but that's it. That's all I need from you. The rest, I'm fine with. I've got it all worked out. So let me just cram you into this old wineskin that my life is and expect you to do the two or three things I want from you. And it's going to be great. Well, it doesn't work that way. Jesus assures us that if we try to do that, the end result is going to be worse, not better. If we abuse and misuse Christ, the result for us is not going to be that our lives become better, they will become worse. I think about this. As we are entering into a new year. And a year as we look forward with great uncertainty. COVID has changed so much about the world. And it isn't just about the medicine and about the politics. And about whether you should wear a mask or not. Whether you should be vaccinated or not. And all these fights that people are getting into about all these things. It's affected the whole economic uh, face of the world. It's affected uh, companies and uh, travel and every, every aspect of global life has been affected. Now for us, this is all brand new. For us, this is disconcerting. But you know who isn't surprised by any of this? Jesus. He knew about this. Before time began. He knew about these years. He knew about these moments. He knew about the things we would be facing today as his church. And what we have to, I think, remind ourselves over and over again about Jesus is that he has to be the center. He has to be the core of it all. And anything else we have built in our lives needs to be ready to be torn down and changed and modified and adjusted. The only thing we cannot get rid of is that core, Jesus himself. Jesus is not going to accommodate what we've built. It works the other way around. We are the ones who have to give way. We are the ones who have to allow Jesus to be the only center and core of everything that defines everything we are and allow him to build our lives as he sees fit. I want you to consider this as we look forward to this coming year. How are you going to allow Jesus to be the one who defines what this new year is for your life, And for the life of this church, Jesus is no patch. He's not a band aid. He's not some new wine we can just cram into the old that we have. We can't pick and choose, take the few things we like about Jesus and discard the rest piece him together and try to force him to fit into our own deficient ways of thinking and our own uh, limited and broken approaches to dealing with the life and the world around us. We have to let him be the only core of our lives. We have to let him be the only core of our church, the identity of who we are as his people. We have to give it all up to him. It can be frightening to let go of everything and say, I'm just going to hang on to Jesus. I do, though, believe that's what his original disciples did. And boy, what a ride Jesus took them for in their lives. He turned the world upside down. It got to the point where they showed up in a new city and people would say, these men who have turned the world upside down have now showed up here. I want Jesus to do that with us. I want him to take our lives and do the kinds of things we could never dream of. As we approach a new year, and I'll, I'll be the first to say there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty as we look forward. Let's just cling to Jesus together and let him do with us what he is up to. Before I pray, I know y'all are aware of Carissa Parton and... Uh, Her situation. She's been in the hospital for a number of days now. They keep trying to get her oxygen levels up and they're struggling to to do that. She has viral pneumonia and fluid in her lungs, and none of those are things you want to hear. Um, I know you've all been praying uh, intently for her, and I encourage you to please continue doing so. Uh, you should have gotten an email yesterday about a prayer chain. Uh, if you haven't seen that email, please check in. And I think there's still hours available that people can sign up to join that prayer chain uh, for her. Uh, and if you haven't received the email, maybe touch base with Doyle and he can probably get you connected to it. I think Karen set it up. Uh, but let, as we pray, I want to pray for Karen and ask you all to, uh, for Carissa, I'm sorry, uh, and ask you all to please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you are the core of everything and that we can cling to you, come what may, and let everything fall away and still know that we are absolutely fine. Lord, we are so concerned for our sister Carissa and we're so grieved to know that she is uh, going through this difficulty with uh, pneumonia and uh, her health. Lord, we just... uh, Treasure her so much. And we pray, we plead with you, Lord, for your grace of healing. We ask you to uh, increase our joy by restoring her health. Uh, And, Lord, we just pray for your your peace and your grace over the whole situation. I know Kevin must be beside himself and CJ and Cooper. And I just pray for your peace in their hearts. And, God, just uh, be exalted in all of this and we do pray for healing and restoration we love you jesus we lift our lives up to you and we turn our eyes to you you alone are our hope it's in your name we pray jesus amen